We are so thrilled to be partnering with Hinge. Hinge is the dating app designed to be deleted. As you all know, I'm a huge Hinge advocate as I met my partner of almost three years on the app. Even before meeting him, Hinge was always my go-to app because I met more relationship-minded people here and had some great dates. Clearly, I haven't been on the app for a little while, but I re-downloaded it to check out some of the new features. One that stood out to me was the voice prompt, my best friend's take on why you should date me, where your friend can hype you up. Not only does this make the profile creation less daunting, but it's not always easy to see your own green flags. So to test it out, I asked UA some fun prompts to get her take on what I could put if I was dating again. So the first one, how long have we known each other? What was your first impression of me and how has that changed? Julie and I have known each other for almost 10 years. My first impression of Julie was that she's very social, but I've learned that she has a lot more depth to her beyond the social butterfly that she is. My next prompt, what do you think are my green flags? I would say she's deeply loyal. She believes in love, curious mindset, and she is fearlessly ambitious. And then last but not least, what kind of friend am I? Julie is the kind of friend who will always have your back, no matter what. Damn, that feels nice to hear. So download Hinge and try voice prompts today. Then find someone worth deleting the app for. I love wine, but sometimes it can get really expensive, which is why I'm so excited that today's episode is brought to you by Last Bottle Wines. If you don't know, they're a Napa-based online wine shop with a twist. They offer just one hand-picked wine per day until it sells out, which is often an hour's. So new day, new wine, always at incredible prices. We're talking 30 to 70% off retail. And the best part is that there's no subscriptions, no fees, and no minimum purchase. Just a daily email with a really great wine. They're offering Datable listeners 10% off your first order with code Datable. And now is such a great time to join as their marathon sale is coming up on March 28th and 29th. They flip that one day rule on its head and offer back to back deals, which means that wines are only up on the site for a couple minutes at a time and shipping is 100% free. They send us a mini marathon package of some of their favorites and let me tell you, they were delicious. Sign up at lastbottlewines.com and use the code datable and find out why Last Bottle is the most fun way to discover and buy amazing wine. The Dateable Podcast features real stories from real people of how they make modern dating work, or not. I'm your host, Yue, former dating coach turned dating insider, if you will. On each episode, you'll hear commentary from my producer, Julie Kraftchik, and other surprise co-hosts. This episode of Dateable is brought to you by 500 Brunches. 500 Brunches connects like-minded people with similar interests to meet in real life over brunch. You answer a quick questionnaire about your interests and how you spend your time, and then they'll match you in small groups of six to eight at a brunch spot in San Francisco. Get a free entry into a brunch now by signing up at 500brunches.com and using the code DATEABLE. Welcome to another episode of Dateable, a show all about modern dating. Our guest for today, his name is Eric Newton. He's a former divorce lawyer, and he has helped thousands of couples decouple. <laughs> so romantic. <laughs> but through it all, he still believes in love, believe it or not. He's a self-proclaimed true romantic. He left his law career to help couples build healthy relationships. And as a result, he started Together, an online resource and guide for couples navigating through the good, the bad, and the ugly of relationships. He also co-hosts the Together podcast, interviewing various couples on how they make their relationships work. Um, he currently lives in San Francisco with his fiance. sometimes volunteers as a marriage commissioner at San Francisco <laughs> City Hall, and has had the honor of marrying more than 180 couples. So you went from decoupling people to now coupling people for life. Uh, that's, about, that's about right. <laughs> that's very honorable. So Eric, you're 42 years old. You're originally from Boulder. Is yeah. that right? Okay. I'm actually, wow, that's deep research. I know. I know. <laughs> I'm from Fort Collins. So we okay. have that We have that in common, Colorado in common. Yeah. And uh, in your form about you know what you want to talk about today, you said you want to explore the intersection of conflict, intimacy, and truth. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. Deep. We're getting deep. Whoa. <laughs> My favorite, love favorite it. topic. We need love like it. two bottles of wine for that. <laughs> I want to first start with, I'm curious, have you been married before? No. 
Never been married no, before. No, I was, I was working on a book and I was thinking of calling it A Thousand Divorces But Never Married. Wow. Or something like that. Because, yeah, I've seen all these couples break up, but I myself was never able to keep a relation together for more than, I don't know, three years or so. So it's like always a divorce, always a divorce lawyer, never the actual groom. Right. <laughs> exactly. Now I've been in a relationship for coming on six years. And, and, you know, we're going steady. We'll be married soon enough. But nice. uh, when are you getting the, married? We don't have a date. Just... Anytime. Happen. You're you know, basically married. I'm, you have a ring on. Well, I wear I wear a engagement ring on, ring on my right hand because I just I couldn't get over that I was giving her an engagement ring, but, but I wasn't yes, getting like exactly. what, it just didn't seem even somehow, you know. So mm-hmm. I went and bought this at a pawn shop for twenty bucks. <laughs> I love it. Something to signify. That yeah, you're something engaged. to signify. So what are your general thoughts on marriage? Well, big question. Uh, I think marriage is extraordinarily useful. I think it is rooted deep, deep in our collective psyche. Uh, I think it's really, really important to the way humans understand ourselves and society and culture and relatedness. It goes back to some uh, archetypal ideas of the union of opposites. I think it's deep, deep in us. And at the same time, I don't think it's necessary. Mm -hmm. And I think it's perfectly fine and totally plausible to have an extraordinarily deep, loving, romantic relationship where you learn all kinds of things about yourself, but never bother with this institution. So I'm really agnostic as to whether people get married, stay married, (laughs) break up, whatever it is that people want to do. What I'm interested in is what can people learn about themselves through the process. So why do you think marriage is necessary for you? Well, for me, there's, there's an added degree of commitment that in our culture at least, and it, given my cultural roots, you know, and things are changing all the time in every single culture, but in the era that I was brought up, which wasn't that long ago, there's just something about being married that takes commitment to another yep. dimension. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I interview, of course, hundreds and hundreds of couples about this. And what they kind of uniformly all say is that no matter how long they'd been together before marriage, there's something that shifts imperceptibly but deeply in their way of seeing themselves in their relationship mm-hmm. when they actually do get married. Is it, oh shit, this is for life? That's one factor, yeah. <laughs> and, and it's like the first year of marriage is like the hardest theory, which I don't fully understand. Maybe it's because I'm not married, but that's like a known thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's that adjustment period that's just really painful. Um, the first year is often characterized by feelings of buyer's remorse, for instance. The, mm-hmm. oh shit, what the hell did I do phenomenon that you're talking about. Postpartum. Postpartum, right, exactly. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, people have to deal with that sort of thing at the beginning. But it's, and I think all of that is rooted in this idea, this concept of that we've been spoon-fed by media over years and by our parents and just by the way culture is around this union of opposites concept about how the heck are we supposed to behave and who are we supposed to be when we're married and Mm. it's it's an unconscious thing so you start acting differently even though you don't know it so even if you don't have buyer's remorse you just could feel like you have expectations that you need to meet or expect of your partner and that's where it becomes like more tricky yeah absolutely well said that that wraps it up well interestingly I have some friends who are newlyweds and they tell me that their first year of being newlyweds it's that feeling of what's mine is his now and that's (laughs) hard to get over I could see that it's kind of like what I what I work towards is now half his in a way and it's not just material things but my identity what Mm -hmm. I work towards as this you know, successful, intelligent, powerful person is now half his identity. Yeah. Uh, so I find that really interesting. How did you become a divorce lawyer then? Uh, well, you know, I guess there's two answers to that. One is I fell into it. <laughs> we fell into it. You know, <laughs> I fell in love, did. fell in divorce. Yeah. <laughs> it just worked out. <laughs> I, uh, the, the quick answer to that question is I moved here without a job. I'd passed the bar. Uh, I didn't have any money. I didn't know what I was going to do for work. I arrived in San Francisco with just enough money to, for rent for a month and, and uh, hung out a shingle. And the first work that came in the door was divorce work. But it wasn't the work that I wanted to do. I was mm. going to be a startup lawyer, and I was going to become a billionaire tech investor, and I was going to rule the world. And here I was divorcing people, and it just 
talk about identity. It just yeah. didn't match up with what I thought about myself. But it kept coming in the door. And then I found a mentor who was a celebrity divorce lawyer, and he took me under his wing. And pretty soon I had this thriving practice doing high-asset divorces. And and I it kind of wasn't what I wanted. But then, but then I stopped and reflected for a moment over drinks with my mentor. And he said, you know, nobody gets into this <laughs> by accident. You know, there are no coincidences. You're here for a reason. And I think there's some truth to that, you know. I had some demons to unearth my parents' divorce mm. to work through and to understand why conflict and why anger and why all the hatred, you know, why all the damage after two people have loved each other so deeply. I think I had to swim in that for a while. So the stereotype is divorces are all nasty. Did you find that with your cases? Definitely not, no. Uh -uh. And, you know, the other thing, too, is a lot of people divorce themselves. Um, I don't know what the stats are, but it's a big it's a it's a big percentage of people that just you know go through it themselves. Who needs a lawyer? Mm. And you know, two adults really can do it. There are some complexities. You need some help with the paperwork. Maybe you got to figure out how to divide some assets, but you can do it. Is it like legal zoom for divorce? Like is, is it that, like legal zoom the online? You can legal zoom actually do does help you with yeah. If you've got sort set of up your simple, LLC, get divorced. Fifty nine dollars. Exactly. Right. I think it's like one hundred and fifty nine. But oh. basically, like, you know. So of all the couples you saw decoupling what was the number one reason for divorce well okay so there's the surface reasons there's the things that people tell you like mm. we disagreed about money or we sex wasn't working out that's the only two reasons you ever hear about is finances and sex life yeah it's money and sex are the two big ones you hear that there's also third parties there's all mm. like like mothers-in-law or best friends oh. getting in the way there's oh, also <laughs> use of time like he or she is always and never makes time for me is always out doing their own thing that kind of thing mm -hmm. you know they're, they're, it's the complaints but what I was always more interested in and remain more interested in is what's below those complaints I don't think that those complaints are really the issue I think what's really going on is that people are scapegoating one another for their own internal suffering their huh. own identity-based pain I think that that's Mostly what we do in conflict with one another and almost always what's going on in so relationship So you think conflict. people get divorced not because of their partner, but because of some deep-seated issues in themselves? Oh, for sure. Whoa. You, <laughs> I know. This is super interesting. Whoa. Yeah, More. I was blown away when we had this initial conflict. <laughs> so basically they're divorcing. They're, they're trying to run away from their demons. Yeah, they're running away from themselves. I mean, if you really think about it existentially, the pain that we experience is us. You know, we're, pain is conceptual. It lives internally. It lives on this, on this strata of this concept of experience, and that's really kind of all any of us has. Yeah. And our pain is living inside of us, created by us for a purpose. I think evolutionarily speaking, it's there for, a, for movement, mm -hmm. but we wallow it in, in, a, in a way that's really unhealthy as humans. And, um, you know, but on the flip side of that, that's access to personal growth. You know, when one of these swamp monsters starts to come out, that's your opportunity to stop and say, whoa, 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 there's obviously a grave right there. Let's dig it up. I mean, I'm getting really morbid in my analogies. <laughs> well, I guess it makes but... sense because a lot of people like turn to relationships to like fix what's wrong in their lives. Totally. Mm. So I guess it makes sense that they could get married and then still have the deep-seated issues that come out later. See, okay, so this is my own personal theory about marriages and divorces in general. When you get married, you pick one person. Yeah. That person may not be the best person for you, but it's called a commitment. So you're committing to them for life. And then throughout your life together, you learn to work on those little issues and you learn to love one each other, one another even more. Yeah. So to me, it's like it's not so much about the marriage part. It's about that journey throughout marriage of making, um, of committing to each other. So I just think if you're already committed to someone for life, and when you say your vows during a marriage, why do people still get divorced? Are they just lazy? They just give up? Well, uh, I mean, they get divorced for a lot of reasons. One is they don't agree with your theory of commitment. So, uh, and, and another one is the pain gets too deep to, to, um, to manage. And I, I sort of think of it as a matrix. Uh, you know, you can think, think of it as a, like a, there's an X and a Y axis. On the X axis is an individual person's level of commitment. 
some people, when they commit to marriage, you'll hear them say things like, you know, I'm committed until we're not spiritually aligned anymore. You know? <laughs> committed till <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> right. Which, to be perfectly honest, I'm not decrying. I think that if two people go in eyes wide open to that kind of marriage, so be it. That's mm. what they want. But you've got to be clear about where you fall on that access. Then the other access mm. is kind of how much personal development work are you willing to do? Because mm. no matter how committed you are, yeah. your relationship will. I don't care if you're Gandhi. Yeah. Or I don't care if you're somebody who was um, massively abused as a child and hasn't recovered. Wherever you are on the personal development right. spectrum, you're going to face pain in a relationship. You will, without question, definitely. The challenges are coming. Don't pretend they're not. So the question is, can you use those, as you're saying, mm -hmm. to go deeper into yourself and into your partner? Can you use that conflict, which is inevitable, to understand who this person that you're in a relationship with is? And that, that is intimacy. That's what we mm. mean when we say intimacy. It's understanding who our partners really are. And you can only get there through the conflict. And how do you, you can only get there through the conflict, but then how do you navigate through the conflict without hurting each other? Yeah, uh, you on one answer is you can't. Um, I think that's a cynical but probably accurate <laughs> answer. You can't not hurt yourself and your partner. But the other one is you can have ground rules. You know, you definitely can go into a relationship with your eyes wide open that, um, that you know this is coming and that you're here for the work. Right. You're here right. for the work with your partner. And, um, and, and go in with support mechanisms in place. This is why mm. personal development work um, in terms of therapy yeah, or right. um, relationship courses yep. uh, or couples counseling or even having a clergy member who you can talk to. Some kind of neutral third-party mechanism that you can use to get outside of your own miasma mm -hmm. to see what's really going on. That's how you do the work. That's a, I think that's interesting, too, because I feel like people do lie on that spectrum of, like, how much self-work they're willing to put out there or even aware of that's needed. Or can do. Yeah. So it's like finding that partner, like you were saying, with the commitment part. Yeah. Like, making sure whoever you are with also feels that way. Yeah. Well, that's a nice segue to uh, my next question, which is, some would argue that divorces can be prevented if people chose better to begin with. Yeah. I know you have some interesting <laughs> thoughts about yeah. this. I want to hear your theories. Uh, I'm, I, I, uh, I don't think you can have a perfect match. By definition, there's no such thing as perfect Sorry, match.com match and your <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't work like that. Um, but you, the, uh, there are better matches than others for sure in, in terms of ease of dealing with conflict, and you can definitely win the lottery. You meet those couples who just seem like everything's going great. <clears throat> but let's not fool ourselves that those people are in the majority. They are in the vast, vast minority. Yeah. Most couples, no matter what they share in public, no matter what they put on Instagram yeah, <laughs> or Facebook, they're having they're having those moments where they're wondering how the heck did I end up end up with this person, you know, like those are inevitable. So um, so I think it's important to go in knowing that you're not going to find a perfect match, um, but that some are easier than others. Now there's a spectrum of good enough, and in some sense you you also can't know in advance your level of tolerance until you're in it, until you've gotten past right. that honeymoon period, right? right? So in some sense, you're rolling the dice. But there are some basic things that you can do in advance, I think, to make sure, or to get a better understanding if you're in the right spectrum, mm -hmm. which we can go over. But the point I was getting at was that once you're in that spectrum where you've decided, yep, this is good enough, or, or, or maybe I think we're high on the spectrum, I think this is gonna work, then you make the commitment that you're talking about or you make a commitment that works for the two of you and you just dive in and you, and you do the work when it comes up because it will. But the problem with modern dating yeah. is the paradox of choice. Yes. There are so many options out there. <laughs> Some would say, Eric, if the spectrum of good enough, that's called settling. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not willing to settle. What would you say to them? That they're being unrealistic. I mean, I, it does, and I, I don't think you need to be in a relationship. But if you want to be in a relationship, you've got to be ready for 
those uncomfortable feelings. Sometimes it's going to present itself as yeah. mediocrity. Sometimes it's going to be boring. Sometimes it's going to be just dry sex, but you feel like best friends. Sometimes it's going to be passionate, angry fighting. Yes. Sometimes it's going to be easy street, but it's going to be all of it. And you got to be ready for it to be all of it. And, um, and if you think anything else is possible, you're just being naive. And, and you're robbing yourself of the great opportunity here. Because again, it's not about, life is not about resolving conflict. That's death, really. The only point at which conflict is over is when there's no more you. you know, we are, we are mm. finite beings who know ourselves by our limits. We know who we are by what we're not. We, we, we experience the sense of touch because one limitation bumps into another limitation. And in its most innocuous sense, that's just a feeling, that's just a sensation. But push that up a degree or two and it becomes pain. Mm -hmm. And then pain with interpretation becomes suffering and then you're off to the races. But that's, that's the character of our life. Our life is defined by those limits. And to pretend them away, you know, to, to numb yourself out to this pretended perfection right. is robbing you of what is life. Yeah. And egos yeah. get in the way. Pride gets in the way. We hear it all the time. Well, he wasn't good enough for me. She's yeah. not good enough for me. Yeah. But how is, is that just an excuse? Or how do you know when someone's not good enough for you versus someone that you really should be working harder with? This is one of the hardest questions to answer. And, uh, and, and so forgive me if this is too reductionist, but I think it comes down to this. Okay. If the relationship is good enough to be good... It's good enough to be great. Mm. Now, mm. no um, criticism if anybody at any moment decides not to make it, take it to that next level, because it's a lot of work. But it's possible. You mm -hmm. can get it there. If it's good enough to be good, it's good enough to be great. Now, there are some relationships that are just a disaster Do, from yeah. the beginning, and that's fine. You know, let them go. What about the people that say, like, oh, like, you know you found the right one when it's effortless? Yeah, what why do people always say that? that? Is that true? Did you feel that way with your fiancé? Uh, I did a little, but I, and I've definitely experienced that plenty of times, but, and, and I, but it's dopamine. You know, it's mm. dopamine and serotonin. So if you look at any of these research studies about what the brain is going through during the first phases of love, it looks something like... For the first month or so, the first roughly 30 days uh, after you meet somebody that you've got chemistry for, mm -hmm. you're awash in dopamine. Mm -hmm. And the dopamine is making you want to smell them and hold <laughs> them and you can't stop thinking about them. Be with them all the time. All the time. You're like, this is magical, right? And then, and that phase matures into something that is characterized by serotonin. Yep. And serotonin is a little bit more like it's honeymoony, but it's less demandingly passionate, right? Mm -hmm. It's still like, oh, I love this person so much, but it's mellow to touch. Right. And allegedly, that lasts for two to three-ish years, depending on the character of the relationship. Two to three years. It can last for two to three years. And then it's going to be dominated primarily by oxytocin. Right. Um, and oxytocin mm -hmm. is this long-term attachment feeling um, that can be very familial, Mm -hmm. Very committed and very loving, but not so passionate. Comfortable. Comfortable. I've heard some researchers say that oxytocin is mutually exclusive with um, testosterone, which is what, which is another one of the chemicals that drives sexual passions. Mutually so, exclusive. Right. It is, and I don't know that that's the case, but we do know that sex tends to drop off yeah, right. right for a period, and it usually is right around years two and three-ish, mm -hmm. right? And some evolutionary biologists have said that that's because that's just enough time for you to procreate, raise a child past infancy, and then kick it out into a village environment, and then you go off and procreate with somebody else. So that you can diversify the um, gene pool. So sex drive in some really twisted way is related to your level of comfort with someone. Yes, and it's related to your ability and need to procreate to, to keep the species moving forward. You know, I think our wow. sex drives <laughs> and our feelings of love in large part are owned by evolution and not mm -hmm. by us individually. And we can certainly enjoy them. I mean, we've hacked these feelings yeah. and we use them for our own individual pleasure now. But let's not, you know, con ourselves that 
that we are greater than we think. It's really the species that owns much of our momentum. I want to bring this back to our listeners who a lot of them aren't married or, you know, even engaged, but they're thinking about getting into relationships. And what happens a lot of times is that media portrays relationships as what we're talking about. It's just like this passion and you want to be with them all the time. And it's always this honeymoon phase. And it sets a really high, unrealistic bar for relationships. So when people date in today's age, get to even a glimmer of a relationship and it's not what they expected, yeah. they peace out. Yeah. <laughs> How, what are, I mean, you interview so many real couples yeah. and you've met so many of them through, you know, who are trying to get, who were trying to get divorced. What is a real relationship like? Well, I mean, they take all, a real relationship takes every one of these characters that you're talking about, but there is something that's available if you push through that, that oxytocin phase, mm-hmm. I think. You know, I, I think the demand to have a relationship that's characterized by that initial passion, that's, that's a perfectly understandable temporary phase called youth. <laughs> early 20s. Early yeah. 20s. Like, it's fine. Enjoy the heck out of it. But it also will pass. You know, you don't have to have your relationship be dominated by those feelings, which are so temporary, you can push into something else. But what if you don't have that in the beginning? The what? The passion in the beginning. Is that a doomed relationship? No, definitely not. Um, You know, people get into relationships for lots of reasons and passion isn't always the one. Mm -hmm. Um, It's nice. You know, I think you probably are gonna, well, sex isn't the most important thing in a relationship, but if it's absent, you're probably doomed. Right. If it's completely absent. So you've got, to, you've got to work on having that there. But you don't have to have that fiery, oh my God, I can't stop touching you feeling to make right. a thing work. Because actually what's on the other side is this, you know, when, when, the, when the serotonin and the dopamine washes away and you have to work to find that intimacy that gives you sexual passion, you have, you're getting into something much, much deeper. You're getting into something with a lot more longevity and richer intimacy. Um, you know, uh, Joseph Campbell used to talk about something called the second marriage, which he thought of as a renaissance of one's only marriage. And hmm. he always said that it happened around year 20. When couples, now I, I don't think it has to take 20 years, but <laughs> <laughs> he always said that at around year 20, the struggle is finally gone and couples have this opportunity to dig into that deeper wellspring of intimacy that's available mm-hmm. underneath the right. easy passion, underneath the drugs. You know, these these neurotransmitters are just drugs in some sense. Mm-hmm. And we're high on the drugs of love for the beginning part of our relationship. And once those are gone, then you can find out who you're really with. Mm, and there's interesting. And, there, yeah. and the sex that comes out of that is always better. I bet. But you got to get to it. So can we go back to what you were talking about earlier about the qualities that make it easier? I know you said like we would table oh. one part. Um, you, you know, I so I just interviewed Dr. Helen Fisher. Yes. Do you know who she is? She's amazing, yeah. yeah. And she has a breakdown, which she's going to, you know, you should probably read her book because mm-hmm. um, I have a hard time always paraphrasing it. But it's just another one of these nice ways of, look, of looking at our personalities. And she says there's essentially um, dopamine-dominated people Oh boy, I'm gonna slaughter this. Uh, you know what? Let me not try to repeat her exact theory. Let me just point you to her book and okay. say that. And your episodes with her. And my episode, episodes. Yeah, my, she breaks it down in my in my two episodes with her. Mm-hmm. Good point. Um, but because the bigger picture for me is that it doesn't really matter what structure you use to understand your personality type. Mm-hmm. It's just good to know it. Right. And it's good to know which types are a match with yours and go for those. I kind of think even astrology will work mm-hmm. in the sense that it's just a way for you to reflect on who you are and what you need. Yep. And you can say that it's because you're a Taurus. I don't care. But or it's a way. Briggs or Myers-Briggs yeah, is a yeah. great one too. Yeah. Um, and Helen Fisher's where she breaks people down into just four categories. Got it. And uh, articulates which of them needs to be which with which of the others. 
Um, mm. I, I so think it's good to just do a little bit of that introspection in advance. So are I, there any personalities that are like known to work really well together and <laughs> ones that are like rapid fire stay away? Um, well, I, one thing that Dr. Fisher, I think it's really, really right is the dopamine personalities uh, are, need to be with one another. They're the sort of adventure seekers, the mm. always outgoing types, the ones who are always on to the next big thing. They need thing. to be with each other? Yeah. Because if you get a really? dopamine person with somebody who's a rule follower, you're gonna you're setting oh. yourself up for constant conflict. But I feel like the dopamine people need someone to ground them. You know, that's that's the truth too. And I'll, and I'll say that in my relationship, which works really really well, mm -hmm. but is also characterized by conflict. Uh -huh. um, I'm a dopamine person and she's a serotonin person mm. and she likes to have structure and rules and she likes to know exactly what's coming up for the next week and me, I kind of don't know what's happening until I wake up that morning, ah. you know, until I look at my calendar and I'm always getting excited about some new project and we work really well because as you said, she grounds me, but it definitely sets us up for conflict. Absolutely. But yeah. I think it goes back to what we always talk about is that you have to know yourself first before you start seeking a mm -hmm. real relationship. Otherwise, I don't even know if I'm a dopamine right. person. You right. know, I think you need to know all these other characteristics about yourself. I agree. And then when you get in a relationship, it's so much fun because you can go through that journey with your partner and, and know what kind right. of person they are. I, I agree, but I just, I gotta say, you know, the thing that I always was a little critical about this entire concept is that I don't know really how much you can know yourself. Mm. I mean, you know, you're gonna, you, you've gotta do the best you can do. Yes, introspection yes. is better. The examined life is always more worth living than the unexamined life. Mm -hmm. Absolutely know yourself, do the work. But also, to some degree, you just have to do your relationships. You just right. have to put one foot in front of the other. Well, people change too. So I think some of it too, it's like if you, whoever you're along the ride with, like, can you guys grow together? Yeah. Or are you growing at different speeds? Because I feel like that would make a huge conflict. Yeah. And how do you predict that ahead of time? You can't. You can't. Which is why everything that, all the work I've done mm. always leads me back to the same point again. Forgive me for hammering it too much. The conflict that rises up in the relationship is your opportunity. If it's good enough to be good, get into that darn thing. Stop worrying about it. Just get started. Have the relationship and then use that conflict to know yourself. And do the work. But is there ever a line? Are there red flags in a relationship where right. these conflicts are too much? <laughs> get the fuck out. <laughs> Everybody sets their own. Um, you know, the one that I'm supposed to say to you mm -hmm. is physical abuse. Mm. I mean, that's, you know, if that's happening, major I think red it's flag. a major red flag and a good idea to get out. That said, you know, people can recover from that. Mm -hmm. And they do. You can recover from infidelity. That's an easy one, by yeah. the way. Inf I've had so many couples on my show come out with the bomb that they just come through a major infidelity experience and come out yes. just fine. I feel like that's like when you think of like couples breaking up. So it's really interesting to hear that some people have had that yeah. happen and don't have it necessarily be the end. If you're allowed, willing to use it, it is an extraordinary opportunity because you get to see what each person contributed to that happening. That's true, because you can break it down to like what caused this to happen. Yeah, without like, getting finger pointing. Have I been distance? Maybe that's why it happened. It's not just the person that cheated. Like yeah. So the only major red flags in a relationship would be anything that's illegal. <laughs> well, it's. I think it like at least what I'm interpreting. It's like how you deal with this yeah. stuff. Yeah, it's. So I it's think like, it's kind of if you're safe. You know. Right. You, if you know, feel like, in danger, then obviously. If you're in danger, get out. Yeah. Yeah. But if you're not in danger and you're willing to push through, go for it. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I, when I start talking in this way, I really, b I believe this, but when I start talking in this way, I, I, I worry that I'm suggesting that people should continue to suffer. Um, and that's not what I'm saying here. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying yeah. if you're suffering, it's your fault and you're not doing enough work and therefore you should just stay until you can figure out. I'm not no. saying that. No. I'm saying um, if you're suffering, it's a really, really great clue to what's unresolved about your internal self. Mm. It's a really, really great clue to your awakening, if you will. Mm. And if you want to use it for that purpose, you can. And it's hard work and you gotta dig through it and you gotta be active and proactive. 
Interesting. But it's an opportunity. Well, people say that about breakups, too. It's yeah. like it's not at the same level as divorce, but like people that can really get a lot out of a breakup if they use it to better themselves. For sure. So I guess like back to like your two earlier of money and sex being the two things, I guess we kind of covered infidelity, but how, what would you say are the deeper rooted issues with the two of those? Uh, so I, I love how money and sex are so powerful. So mm -hmm. I, I think of uh, sort of the two driving forces of the human experience. I think of them in biological terms as procreation and survival. You know, really, as far as our animal selves are concerned, that's what we're here for. Mm -hmm. And then there's lots of consciousness layered on top of that and lots of sort of spiritual inquiry layered on top of that and art and beauty and all of those wonderful pursuits that I'm not dismissing. But at the root of who we are as physical beings, we've got these two driving agendas. And in our modern experience, those two are represented by sex and money, mm -hmm. procreation, and survival. Mm -hmm. And so those two issues tickle our deepest drives and therefore our deepest fears. Because really what a fear is, is it's some sort of coded response to that we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing to survive or procreate, hmm. right? And then the fears get abstracted and they become anxieties and they become fights and they become suffering and all of the life challenges that we feel on a daily basis. And so the quickest access to those two things often is how we relate to sex or money. Mm. Sex has another layer on top of that even, which is that for some reason, the way our psychology seems to be built, humans tend to, and I'm, I'm citing research by um, sex therapists like mm -hmm. Stan Siegel and others, um, that humans tend to take childhood wounds and traumas and in order to understand and normalize them, mm -hmm. we sexualize them through adolescence, which is hmm. why you get these fetishes that people have hmm. that so are related to some kind of childhood trauma. Fetishes are related to trauma. Huh. Interesting. <laughs> now, I, I want to say, I'm not the sex researcher here, but this is one of the predominant theories about where sexual proclivities come from. Mm -hmm. It's... You know, if you think about what a sexual desire is, it's an idea. It's a story. Yeah. It's it, an abstracted concept that's living in your head. Where does it come from? Where does it come yeah. from? And the answer, not always, but often, is it comes from some experience in childhood that was painful, mm -hmm. that got sexualized through adolescence and maybe became a full-blown fetish or maybe just came a desire. Mm. Um, Interesting. But inquiring into why what we want and why we want it mm. is the first is one of the first steps towards understanding where those traumas were in childhood and where your pain still lives mm. and then that is the first step towards understanding who you are as an individual and then right the whole thing can come unraveled there so when couples get divorced or uh, breakup based on reasons for about sex or finances those actually relate to other issues and those are just kind of the surface level issues for sure uh -huh. yes i mean it's always the deeper stuff right mm -hmm. um and and yeah uh, at the same time if your partner is going to vegas and spending all the money um that you guys right. have in your savings account you've got to stop that bleeding you've just got to you, you've yeah. got to protect your finances and you've got to right. protect yourself. Or if your partner just like refuses to have sex with you and is sleeping with someone else right. and you don't find infidelity forgiving, like there's some reasons that are more black and white also. Yeah. And there's work to do there. There's mm -hmm. work obviously for your partner to do. Right. If they're blowing money in Vegas, there's something going on. Yep. If they're going to prostitutes but not having sex with you, there's something going on for them. Right. And the really deep and hard to look at work is the person who's the quote unquote victim in that situation. Mm. And I, you know, this is not okay to say in politically correct society, but the truth is they have an opportunity to look at their own responsibility too. Right. And that's, that's where the good work is for them. Totally. 
It's interesting because I feel like my parents, like, growing up, I didn't think they had, like, a good relationship. But, like, later in life, yeah. like, now that probably my brother and I have left, they seem to be, like, really <laughs> doing a lot better. So I do think it, like, goes in waves over time, Definitely. too. So it, I feel like we, uh, you know, in this society, because we're always, we're constantly delaying marriage now because it's all about improving yourself and finding the best person to suit you. So people are willing to spend more time to find the one. And my mom always says to me, she's, you know, she's been with my dad for uh, 37 years. They've been married for 37 years. She goes, just find someone and just make it work later. She always says that. She's like, you can't be afraid of divorce. You can't be afraid of marrying the wrong person because chances are you're going to have those thoughts anyway. Just find someone, stick to them, and figure it out later. Totally. So let's talk about some takeaways. My takeaways are, I think it's really um, so fascinating what you're saying about, because I thought we were just going to talk about finances and sex all episode. (laughs) How, How couples can reconcile those issues. But you're saying those are tied to deeper issues. So it makes me think about couples counseling. I mean, I think a lot of couples go through counseling when it's almost a little later in, mm. in their in their um, relationship. Although when that's some, changing. That trend is changing. Is it? Finally, finally, people are waking up to the idea that if you want your relationship to work, you got to lay the groundwork in advance. I, so they're I going feel, to therapy early. I feel like therapy is like vitamins. You should take yes. it as preventative yeah. care. Yes. So people should go when their relationship is still on a high note yes. to prevent right. later or to you talk know, things conflicts. through more yeah. and get on the same page with different aspects. My only issue with talking things through, it's it's easy to say, but yeah. we don't have the tools of talking things through. These are not skills that we were taught in school. I don't know how to communicate through a conflict because sometimes my emotions get in the way. Yeah, yeah. Right. And also until it happens, it's it's hypothetical. You have a different response than when it actually is happening. I feel like when we hear about other people's issues, it's so much easier to resolve for them because you're a third party. But when you're actually involved in that relationship, it's a lot harder to think things through logically. Yeah, and you probably won't be it. You're going to fall on your face when that happens. So I think the thing you got to do is forgive yourself when it does mm-hmm. and then go get proactive about how to do it. Mm-hmm. And start with the easy stuff. You know, start with getting control of your amygdala, as they say, your lizard brain. <laughs> um, yeah. There's some really basic tools for calming yourself down when you're freaking out. You know, you're, you, that feeling where your vision narrows yeah. and your breath, breath shortens and you want to either fight or run yeah. or your brain shuts off and you freeze. Like there are some really basic things you can do to slow that down so you can be rational again. Things like opening up your peripheral vision on purpose, mm. breathing deeply, closing your eyes and imagining something you're grateful for. Those three simple tools will get you out of your amygdala, at least for a moment, so that you can stop and be rational and ask, wait a minute, if I love this person, what should I say? Yes. <laughs> my my boyfriend always says this because I'm kind of a firecracker with him, and he's always like, you, you need to approach our conflicts with love mm. and not with mm. a you against me, which is what I sometimes do. And I'm, I'm sorry, I'm a 36-year-old woman who has always been like this independent woman. And all of a sudden, I'm on a team with someone who wants me to think about him before thinking about myself. It's hard to do. It's a hard transition for me. But yeah. he always says, approach it with love and you'll see it differently. Or at least think about the two of you. Mm-hmm. Thinking about him might make it too hard for you to shift. Yeah. But thinking about the jointness of yeah. you guys as a third entity yes. is, is a halfway point. I think my other takeaway is like go in knowing that it's going to be work. Like yeah. even the best relationship is going to be work. And I think like we talked about earlier, like it should feel easy. Like the really basic things at the beginning, if they're too much work, then that's not a good sign of a relationship. Like if someone doesn't respect you and that stuff. But knowing that it's not going to always be a walk in the park and that if you do love someone and you want to have all the good that comes with the relationship, you need to put it in that work. Yeah. And just on that, uh, related to that is we need to stop putting relationships on a pedestal. Yeah. It's not like once you're in a relationship, everything is wonderful. Right. And you're yeah. just going to love saved. them all the yep. time. And you're a complete person now. You complete me and I complete you. It doesn't work like that. I think relationships are a stage in life. Yeah. It's not an accomplishment by any means, right. right? And so we should stop putting it on a pedestal. It's not the end point. It's a verb. Right, yes. Yeah. And there is a carrot, though. I mean, if you do work through those conflict moments, there is a kind of peace and intimacy that's available. The good yep. gets better, mm-hmm. Yep. It, but it never stops. 
Yep. And I think like we said too, it's like if it really gets to that point that you are unhappy, like then you should leave. Yeah. Like that is kind of like you should work as much as you can, but if you can't, then that's the benefit of this society is that you're not trapped in something for life if it's really not serving you. You yeah. can you can leave, um, but I, but only the the happiness thing is. Let's be clear about that. That's only if that's what you think is important, right? Yeah. Right, because because happiness is going to evaporate too in every relationship, at least for a while. I mean, you'll go. You can. I have couples in my show that say that they've been through five years of unhappiness. Yep. And then they came out with a kind of love and passion that they never thought was possible. That's yeah. true. And like I was saying with my parents, like, I mean, not that they were totally unhappy, but it's much better now. So I guess it's like thinking about the bigger picture, too. Yeah. All right. We're going to do our question of the day. This question comes from Genevieve, who says, I'm currently engaged to the love of my life, and we decided to get a prenup. Some of my friends think it's strange we're discussing divorce before we are even married. What are your thoughts? How common are prenups these days? <laughs> oh, man, I love this question so much. <laughs> I, I just adore this. So um, first and foremost, there's a paradigm shift that everybody, I think, needs to go through around the idea of uh, prenups. It's not whether or not you want a prenup, and it's not whether or not you're planning for divorce in advance. The question is, do you understand the prenup that you already have? Mm. Because everybody already has a prenup. Mm -hmm. The rules of the state that you live in or the country <laughs> that you live in about marriage and divorce are a prenup. A prenup is just a bundle of rights and responsibilities having to do with divorce, mm -hmm. and that's what you've already got by default with the state. So the question is, do you want the one you have? And do you understand the one that you have? And so hmm. I think that when you're getting into a relationship with somebody, if you're going to get married, you owe it to your partner to understand what the rules are that you already have by default. And if you like those, great. Hmm. They, they're, they're actually right. perfect for 95% of people. And then the other 5% want a little tweak. Mm -hmm. And that little tweak is a prenup. So in the state of California, it's basically like 50-50, right? Mm. Isn't that like how... Or... Uh, yes and no. So... <laughs> <laughs> it's more complicated than that. It's more complicated. Basically, you have community property, which okay. is property that you earn during the marriage or acquire during the marriage, mm -hmm. with some exceptions. And then there's separate property, which is typically property you acquired before the marriage. Mm. Uh, in California, the community property is divided 50-50 if there's a divorce. Okay. And a prenup can tweak that. Um, and there's all sorts of uh, um, exceptions having to do with real estate, inheritance, gifts, Got it. Um, intellectual property is an issue. Mm -hmm. you know, there are lots of little details that you should understand if you're actually going to get married. Um, so do your research, do right? Your research Basically, because know you, what you're getting into. Yeah, yeah. you want to know what you're promising. It's not so much, I don't think of it in terms of what you're getting into. I think of it as what you're promising. Right. Like what are you actually committing to with this person that you love? I think also, like, some people say, well, I don't really have any assets. Like, it doesn't matter. But you also just don't know what's going to happen in the future. Yeah. Like, you could be a startup founder in your kitchen right now. But in, like, five years, you can make it. And then it could be a totally different ballgame. It's certainly easier if you don't have assets. But you still need to know what the rules are. Right. You may, again, 95% of people want the default default rules. They're pretty good. Mm -hmm. The default rules are pretty good, but they're not perfect for everybody. Right. There's so also issues not... of spousal support, right. alimony, for mm -hmm. instance, which some people just think is crazy and other people think makes perfect sense. So, you know, you just got to know what you're getting into. But if you've thought about it and you've talked about it, and by the way, the conversation around a prenup is the perfect first very challenging uh -huh. conversation to have about money yes. because it raises this question well, hopefully of you've had purpose. more money conversations before are you yeah. surprised how many don't yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I had my mind blown by how few people even asked the question of whether their partner wanted kids or not uh -huh. before getting wow. married much That's less shocking. talking about yeah. debt and income and long term plans for career like these are great questions they're so wow. fruitful but you got to start somewhere. Why not start with a prenup? Yep. Well, I think people think there's a connotation of a prenup of like protecting your assets, but what you're saying, it's really just like rewriting the like the rules, yeah, like it's, the laws that you're going after. It's about understanding what is marriage for you. 
Mm-hmm. Is marriage about... The answer to what you want to do with your assets says something about what you think marriage is. That's what it is. You know, it's money is not the only part of marriage, but it's a big part. Let's mm-hmm. not pretend it's not. The details and the daily management and the administrative elements of marriage are a huge component huge of marriage. Yeah, so let's not pretend they're not there. And what you what you say about what you want to do with your assets before, during, and after marriage says a lot about what you think marriage is. Mm-hmm. And it's good to know. Yeah. Don't be scared of this. Don't be sure. scared. Don't be scared. I mean, you're you're committing to someone for life already. So why is this so scary right. for some people? Totally. I think we just live in a society where there are like taboo topics to talk about with someone you're in love with. And these things shouldn't be taboo because you're spending and building a life with this right. person. You can't have these conversations. Then you're done. Yeah. You're done. <laughs> mm-hmm. totally, totally. All right. Well, we're going to wrap this up. Thank you so much, Eric. My for total pleasure. For blowing our minds. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Come to the studio anytime. I'd love we to have you guys on my show. We want to come to the studio. We want to direct our listeners to your podcast that can be found at together.guide. That's right. We were at I memorized all of that. <laughs> and also, you live in San Francisco. Yeah. So if people want to reach out to you, they can find your contact information on your website. That's right. At the website, you, there's a contact form and email and all that stuff. And, you know, I love folks. I'd, I'd love to talk to anybody. And for anybody who wants to be a guest on our show, we'd love to have you as a guest. We can even anonymize you if you want to protect your identity. Um, Give us a shout out. We love to hear from you. And on that note, stay stay dateable. Your action item for this week is to think about what a relationship really means to you. A lot of us can always say, oh, I'm looking for a relationship. I'm looking for something serious. But what does that mean to you? What are you willing to put in? What's that effort and time that you're willing to put in to make a relationship work? Because as we know, there are no perfect relationships out there. So you have to ask yourself, are you willing to make the effort and time to make a relationship work? Also, follow us on Instagram as we're about to announce the details for our upcoming holiday contest. Our handle is at datablepodcast. If you didn't know already, in our off season, we launched a premium series called The Why Series, where we dissect, analyze, and offer solutions to some of the most common dating conundrums. We've had some great feedback on how actionable these episodes are. So check it out on our website under the tab Why Series, or you can now buy directly from iTunes Music. The most efficient way to meet new people is a combination of online and offline. 500 Brunches has your offline covered. Connect over brunch with new friends. Come alone or bring a buddy. There is always a table full of friendly faces, mimosas, and eggs benedict. Sign up at 500brunches.com and use the code DATEABLE for a free entry. To connect with us, visit datablepodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all under Datable Podcast. Mm-hmm.